This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We are talking about the U.S. slapping uh, Canada with steel and aluminum tariffs as of midnight tonight. How big are the concerns for the local chamber in regards to the steel and aluminum tariffs? And, of course, more importantly, what it means to the Hamilton steel industry. Let's bring in Keenan Loomis, president and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. He is with us now. Keenan, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. So are you surprised to see this after we got an exemption initially? Well, I think, yeah, we had to prepare for this, uh, certainly, but still it is surprising because it is such a an aggressive move against a really strong historic ally. I think this is a, a really really unfortunate day in, in the history uh, between our two countries, you know, I, and I don't, uh, I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic uh, there. I think that um, this is uh, really aggressive, is going to uh, be the, the first shot in a trade war, that it will be unfortunate for both sides. Why the exemption initially and not now, do you think? Well, this was all about building up leverage for NAFTA. Um, and the administration certainly had, I think, uh, very ambitious goals in getting that wrapped up uh, by this time. We know that congressional elections are happening in November, and in order to put this on the plate of uh, Congress, they needed to come to a deal with the U.S. and Mexico around this time, and so that's why the exemption was uh, was uh, set to expire on June 1st. It was it was simply to to try to get uh, Mexico and Canada to agree uh, hastily to a NAFTA deal that might be unpalatable to them other- otherwise. So, uh, can we be so blunt to say, sign here, or we'll slap you with tariffs? Well, the issue, I think, is going to be that the Canadian government is now backed into a corner and is going to be forced to respond. Um, and that's exactly what we've been trying to avoid. We, uh, within the business community, we don't want to see tariffs at all. Um, it's certainly within um, uh, allied uh, you know, uh, economic relationships. Um, we know that there is an issue um, with one country in particular, and I think it's really puzzling um, to understand why allies are being targeted and not the one country, uh, China, that uh, is the cause of most of the global, global oversupply of steel. Uh, what about their steel coming in through the other markets, including ours? Well, that's an issue, uh, and and certainly a big part of this is, uh, you know, one of the things um, I think that I'm grateful for uh, is the administration raising the issue um, and helping us understand how important it is that we need to shore up our borders um, because of the possibility of dump steel coming into Canada and going through the United States. And the federal government has done a great job in responding to that and in um, and in providing uh, Customs and Border Patrol with the necessary tools uh, to be able to enforce uh, our borders. They've provided uh, CPB with uh, greater resources as well to be able to do that. So that's really great um, and really good for our domestic steel industry, um, but one of the, the many issues that we're dealing with here, um, and obviously the, the 232 and NAFTA are uh, certainly the bigger issues here. Uh, so what will Canada, the Prime Minister, do? Uh, will they fight back with their own sort of uh, penalties, or will they relax their ambitions on NAFTA? 
No, I think that uh, they are being forced to respond and retaliate. Um, I know that the Prime Minister is speaking at 1.30, so we don't have to wait too much longer to hear what the response is going to be from Ottawa. Um, the the best thing um, that we think that they should be doing, and I think the you know Canadian steel industry also agrees with this, is that we need to focus on uh, U.S. steel shipments into Canada. Uh, we have to remember that uh, steel uh, trade between our two countries is completely fair and completely integrated and completely balanced. So almost the same amount of steel comes in from the United States into Canada as goes the other way. And so that's the obvious target here. Instead of targeting, you know, Kentucky bourbon and Harley Davidson's that are made in Wisconsin, uh, we need to be uh, responding in a directly proportional way. Uh, Wilbur Ross says this is all about national security. It's got nothing to do with NAFTA. Is anybody buying that? No, no, that is complete BS, and in fact, the, because the administration says, has, has said this. He says that, of course, uh, the U.S. needs a vibrant steel energy uh, industry in order to supply itself if we go to war. Uh, Certainly they do. Can't they get that from to, us and them? <laughs> well, we, we need a vibrant steel industry as well. The, the president said this a couple months ago when he said, if you don't have a steel industry, you don't have a country, and we completely agree with that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't know why they would target an ally in this way. Um, we have, Canada has never been a national security threat to the United States in the last 200 years. Um, in fact, we've fought many wars together. Uh, we have many joint defense agreements. So it is completely spurious to be targeting Canada with these tariffs um, on national security grounds. It, it, it won't hold water at uh, the WTO. Uh, this is an illegal action on, on the part of the administration. So what can Canada really do that will have an impact on the United States? Well, again, it, it is necessary for us to respond in a strong way um, and retaliate in a directly proportional way. So we need to Can you give me an example of that? Exact conditions. Well, again, uh, you know, $6 billion worth of U.S. steel flows into Canada, same amount that flows from Canada into the U.S. Mm. Um, if, there, if 25% is going to be the tariff right. imposed on Canadian steel imports into the U.S., well, then 25% needs to be the tariff on uh, U.S. imports into, um, into Canada. And don't forget all the other issues that uh, now will spring up. Think about that very first truck that's going to show up at the border tonight at uh, at 12.01 a.m. What is going to happen? I don't even think the the Border Patrol officers know how they're going to enforce this. I don't know if they've received any direction at all. So the border is going to be completely clogged as of uh, midnight tonight, and not just for steel shipments, because as we know, uh, once you start uh, clogging up uh, the Peace Bridge, it impacts all shipments across the border. And so we have to do exactly as the U.S. is doing to us, uh, to them, uh, so that they can feel the same pains. Where do you see this going? I mean, how long can this go on? Well, I think that, again, we'll respond in a proportional way. Um, Chaos will ensue, and that we we hope that uh, there will be pressure on the administration to to stand down, um, and certainly when it comes to uh, Canada, because, again, um, a lot of U.S. industry uh, relies upon the Canadian market, and uh, we assume that if they feel the same pain that we do, that uh, that pressure will then uh, come on on to the uh, administration and force them to back down. Uh, We've talked to many experts that say that this is insane. Donald Trump loves a win, though. How how can he sell this as a win? 
Well, they have completely wrapped us up into NAFTA negotiations. Um, I know that uh, we are we were fairly close uh, to coming to a deal, a skinny uh, NAFTA deal, which may or may not uh, require approval by Congress. Um, and uh, just dealing with uh, mostly with autos and, and leaving everything else pretty much the same uh, as it was. Uh, I know that the United States and uh, Mexico, or Canada and uh, Mexico, are willing to uh, reach that agreement at this point in time. Um, and I think that the U.S. just needs to uh, understand that that's what we can um, accomplish at this time. We need to do it, take it as a victory, and uh, go on uh, trading as uh, uh, three nations. Over and above how this will affect Canadian steel industry, the Canadian steel industry, how will this affect consumers? How long before we start to see this? Well, I think you'll immediately find once the uh, you know the automotive um, uh, assembly plant in Indiana uh, runs out of its current stock of, of Canadian steel, um, you know, being shipped in from DeFasco, uh, and the next shipment of steel uh, faces a 25% tariff. Um, then, of course, that input within that car is going to raise the price of the car uh, in a proportional way, and then uh, vice versa, uh, U.S. steel that's going to be hit with tariffs uh, here are going to be more expensive on this side of the border as well. And again, this is, this is what we were trying to avoid all along. So prices are on their way up? Prices will uh, will certainly go up. It'll be interesting to see how the markets respond. And, you know, that's the one thing I think that uh, uh, the current administration looks to as, as a major bellwether. And hopefully, um, you know, the markets will, will speak to him in a way that will cause him to back down. Keenan Loomis has been with us, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Keenan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario PC Party has released a list of their spending promises, but won't be delivering a full-costed platform before the election. Voters also won't see a plan to eliminate the deficit. Here's what Doug Ford had to say. People understand our plan. Uh, when I ask them, what is the NDP plan or, or the Liberal plan, they can't answer. And I said, do you know what our plan is? And they say, we know your plan. You're going to reduce our hydro rates. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So uh, it was a great uh, clip we just played of Doug Ford, but I think the one thing he's leaving out is here is how. How is he going to do all this? So considering Patrick Brown's People's Guarantee, should the PCs have uh, put forth a costing platform of some sort? Well, there's a number of factors you have to keep in mind. Number one, Patrick Brown, when he was PC leader, had more time to actually create a massive plan, which was the People's Guarantee. That plan no longer exists, and in fact, I don't even really know if there's much to talk about any longer. It's now been obviously superseded by um, Doug Ford's The People's Plan. Or but how much, dif- how much different were these two plans? I mean, we're still talking about the same political party here. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously some differences here and there. I mean, naturally, there's no costed-out platform for, say, a carbon tax because the Ontario PC Party has moved away from that. So that factor doesn't have to be actually any part of the plan any longer either. Um, And obviously some of the new things that Doug Ford has suggested have been added in. Naturally, people have come back and said, well, he claimed that, you know, that no health care worker in Ontario and virtually no worker at all is going to be fired. So how is that exactly going to happen based on his plan? 
And the fact is, it's true, is number one, it's not listed there. Um, I don't even know if they necessarily have the numbers in place, but that's also partially because, and this is where my second point works into it, we don't exactly know what the deficit is currently at in this province, and that's a big issue. Why doesn't, why, doesn't, why doesn't Ford say that then? Why doesn't he use that as an excuse? Hey, I'd love to provide you with a costed platform, but it's not going to be accurate because there's different accounting going on within the Liberals. Why doesn't he use this instead of making excuses? Well, in fairness, that's something you have to ask him, but I think it's actually a very obvious point, and I think it's something, certainly for the next few days, I mean, we only have a week left in the campaign that he'll probably use, Scott. Do you think that's obvious to voters, though? That, that what? That, there, that his accounting might be different than, or sorry, the Liberals' accounting might be different than anybody else. Therefore, how do we come up with a plan when once we get in there, it's all different anyway? Do you think well, the average voter a, knows that? Well, I, they're going to, I mean, over time. And I think that now some pundits are starting to move in that direction. I'm sure the Ontario PCs will as well, Scott. And that's mainly because, you know, the, the financial auditor is producing different numbers in terms of where the Ontario economy stands and what the deficit is at versus the, the current Liberal government. With that in play, yes, I think there are enough question marks that are out there that if, say, Doug Ford's uh, plan for the people had actually had a fully costed out plan to the penny in terms of things, and they had come into office and found that the deficit was even worse than what had been suggesting now, well, all those numbers and all those pages are meaningless because then you'd have to recost the entire plan again because it would have to then factor with the numbers as they currently stand. Is that any reason for not doing it? Why not just base your plan on the AG's numbers? Because, if, again, if they're wrong, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. I think you should try to do it as accurately as you possibly can. And if that's the case, I don't actually have a dis- problem with half a pie, which is basically what this plan is right now. At least we have some, plan- some numbers that are out there in terms of what he will spend on things like transit, how he will be able to cut people's taxes and reduce the size of government. At least you have some basic facts and figures. You can go there, point to it, and there's billions of dollars covered one way or the other. I would much rather have that than what we had before, which was nothing and just continual comments from the Ontario PCs that something is coming, a plan is coming, a plan is coming. At least there's now something here where Doug Ford can sort of tangibly look at numbers and say, this is what we said, here's our plan, this is what we plan to do, and the rest of it, as I'm saying, will be covered later once they get into government, and then they can actually figure out what needs to be done based on either whether the Liberal government's numbers are accurate about the deficit, which I don't think they are, the financial auditor's numbers are accurate, which is probably closer to the truth, and then you can actually start sort of seizing it up, putting everything together, and ensuring that the promises you've made, both on the plus side and the negative side in terms of taxpayer dollars, fit into a model that actually will work for Ontario. So while some people are saying, well, you know, there's a sort of walking on water or walking a very thin rope on things, and why are they doing this? I think there actually is a rational point to it. Could they have made up a fully costed plan with just magic numbers coming out of the sky? Absolutely. It's not like any other party hasn't done that before. But don't you want it to be accurate? Don't you want it to actually match what the Ontario economy is going through right now? Hence, Doug Ford, who hasn't really been on the job that long, has basically decided with his senior advisors that we're going to wait on that final part. While this may bother 
a lot some of the voters it may bother some of the media it may bother other people i think it's still a more realistic way of looking at things especially before the writ was dropped the current provincial government was fighting with the auditor in terms of where things really stood in the province of Ontario, at least in terms of our economy. But he so isn't yeah, really I'm okay with it. He hasn't really made that point up until now. He's never said that. He's he, you know he's never really said you know what's the sense of me giving you a plan if once we get in there the books are completely different anyway. That being said, the opposition is promoting the narrative that this guy is going to cut the hell out of everything and he's going to save all this money and we don't know where these cuts are coming from or where this money is coming from. Don't the voters need to have some sort of baseline to, if the numbers are here, we'll go there. If the numbers are here, we'll go there. Well, with respect, there now is a plan. So there is something there. So if pe- first people are complaining that there's no plan. Now they're complaining that there's numbers out there, but it's not perfectly intertwined with other things. I mean, you can't have exactly what you want. If you want your cake and you, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too if you, if you don't actually sort of wait for the serving to be put in front of you. At least there is something there. So this whole commentary, some of which was, by the way, was justified, that the Ontario PCs did not have a plan is no longer, in my opinion, factual because there is something there and it's on the website. In terms of what the Ontario voters want or expect, sure, I'm sure they would love to have a fully costed out plan that, as I said, any political party, not just the Ontario PCs, any party, could just make up. You can take numbers out of the sky. It's very easy to create things. And then had to have something there, get into government, and then say, well, you know what, we've looked at the books, and things don't necessarily add up. I'm afraid we're going to have to go back, sharpen our pencils, and do it all over again. Why not have a plan and qualify, with that, qualify it with that statement, though, just to head this off at the pass? I mean, let's be honest well, here, Michael. The PCs, when this all started, everyone thought they had it in the bag. They yep. continually make life difficult for themselves. Why do I, they do this? Yeah, I, no, and I'm not disputing that certain things they have made life very difficult for themselves. You mean you don't have to tell any conservative in the province, including me, about that. We understand it. Even if we like the Ontario PC plan, even if we think that Doug Ford has been doing a good job up until now, and even if we're going to vote for this party, either, you know, either during the advance polls, which ended yesterday, or on June 7th, we don't, we're certainly not going to sit here and say that this campaign has gone perfectly. Although, in fairness, I don't think any of the three major parties have, quite frankly, gone all that perfectly. I think there have been a lot of mistakes made by everyone, and it has not been one of the most pristine, uh, shall we say, election campaigns held in recent years. And again, not to be critical here, Michael, well, yeah, I will be critical. We expected that from the other parties. We didn't expect this from the PCs, especially after they've taken this thing off the rails the last couple of elections due to their own fault and nobody else's. So you know, well, there's PCs out there that are very upset with what the hell's going on with this party. That being said, uh, why don't they roll out the cabinet? Why don't they roll out the experience? Why don't they roll out the people who are going to be behind this guy? Well, I mean, they have rolled out to some extent. I mean, certainly we have seen, we have seen that the Ontario PCs, when they recently brought out some people during their Niagara Roundtable, had people like Christine Elliott, Vic Fideli, Caroline Mulroney, and others. Those are the people who will ultimately be part of a Doug Ford cabinet. Shouldn't they be selling that now, Michael? Shouldn't there be they a spot? They are selling it. They've Should... already done it, Scott. What I have not about? seen, I've seen a bazillion spots. I have not seen one of Ford standing up there in a pile of, of, of a legitimate progressive conservatives behind him. Where's that spot? Where's that? That pick? Niagara Roundtable was actually shot on Facebook Live. It was all through social media. I mean, I, I don't have a screenshot, obviously, sitting in front 
front of me, and this is radio, so I can't visually show anything. But people can look it up. It was there. I saw it. Why aren't they putting that on mainstream TV? Why are they not backing this guy up with the party that's so strong behind him? Well, look, you can look at it that way, or you can say that at least, if nothing else, Doug Ford presented on one, for one example for a few hours some people who would be part of his cabinet versus, say, Andrea Horvath, who just said a couple days ago, when asked, well, who's going to make up your cabinet? She basically said that all options are on the table. Perfect. So this is a great opportunity for Ford to roll out his. Why is he not doing it? Well, look, unfortunately, and I'm not trying to skirt around it, I'm not part of his team. I don't know why they're doing certain things and not doing others. I can't really answer that. All I can do is a... You know, as a, com- as a political analyst, a commentator, pundit, whatever you wish to call me, I can only look at issues, I can only discuss things that make sense to me or I disagree with, and make suggestions on how they could be better. I mean, in terms of what they choose to do, that's ultimately their own doing, which is perfectly fine because that's how political parties are supposed to operate during election campaigns. You have your group of insiders, you have your campaign team full of intelligent, thoughtful people, and they build the platform. I mean, people on the outside, you know, media analysts um, or uh, columnists, reporters, pundits like me, etc., we just offer suggestions and other ways to do things. So, in terms of why they're not doing it, you have to ask them directly. In terms of why they didn't say, say what I've been saying, that the deficit in Ontario has not been crystal clear, ergo when we release our plan, we're not going to necessarily cost everything out to the penny or to the nickels we now currently have in this country, I don't know. That's really up to them as to why they haven't said it. My guess, though, is that they'll start saying it from here in. As a conservative, you can't be happy where the campaign is right now. Well, no, I would rather not be neck and neck with the NDP. I think that's actually pretty that's actually pretty clear. I don't think any conservative would necessarily be happy with that. I think this election is exceedingly close. Do you think, think about it do you think this is the seat impact to decide and that's the one advantage that the PCs have. Do you think this is about a great performance for the NDP or a poor performance for the PCs? Uh, neither. I think actually, basically, it's just a lot of people against Premier Kathleen Wynne and the Ontario Liberals, and they're just moving all over the place. Yes, I think they would have preferred, obviously, that the Ontario PCs had run a crystal clean campaign, which had been spotless, spot on with everything, learning from the mistakes in the past, especially the uh, 2011 and 2014 provincial elections, both of which we made, unfortunately, a lot of blunders with no disrespect to Tim Hudak, who I like as a person, respect overall, but there were just a lot of bad mistakes that were made during those campaigns. I think that unfortunately, there are certain pitfalls that this party steps into, and sadly enough, you know, they've been sort of stuck with, um, I guess, a strategy right now that, yes, emphatically combines conservative ideals and populist rhetoric, and has been successful up until, say, just a few weeks ago. But unfortunately, due to problems that have occurred either in the previous administration through Patrick Brown or issues that have happened on the campaign trail, it has obviously pushed the party back. There are now a lot of Ontarians who are not sure which way they want to go, and there are a lot of progressives who are now shifting away, it appears, from Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals and are firmly planting themselves with Andrea Horvath and the NDP. Of course, I'm not pleased by that. The thought of an NDP government (laughs) next week frustrates me to no end. On the other hand, this is democracy. You know, if people choose to go that route, God help them, but that's what we're going to do in Ontario. So the Ontario PCs have seven days, which, believe it or not, is a lot of time in politics, 
to ensure that whatever people are still sitting on the fence, and some polls are showing it's anywhere from about a third or more, to, tr- to just basically convince them that, look, we now have a basic plan where you can actually point out numbers and show what we're going to do. Once the deficit has been actually confirmed, we're going to finish up the puzzle, and then from there, Ontario will be run successfully. We have a campaign team in front of us, as I said before, and we have lots of people who are knowledgeable, talented, intelligent, and will do an excellent job in cabinet, unlike, say, concerns about what the NDP could actually put forward if they form a government, and God knows what would be in their cabinet, and that Doug Ford, aside from all the criticism, has done the best he can, is still getting sizable crowds all throughout the province, and has been widely accepted by a lot of people as someone who combines conservative ideas and populist rhetoric successfully. If that message is going to hold, they will be successful next week. What are we going to see this week? What are we going to see in the lead-up, the run-up to this election? Well, I mean, now is really the time when everything sort of goes out to ensure that your base of support is all in a line, in other words, all your ducks are in a row, to ensure that they have the different mechanisms in place that all political parties employ to get the vote out, so to speak, because every single vote really is going to count, it appears, in this election. And I think as well, on the Ontario PCs have to ensure that nothing else creeps up and basically sort of catches them at the very, very end. Because one more disaster, I would say, for either the Ontario PCs or even the Ontario NDP could do that party in if this large number of undecideds is accurate. And that's what you know, a lot of these polling companies, for better or for worse, seem to be suggesting. So now the message basically has to be firm and strong for the next week because the debates are over. Most of, shall we say, the shenanigans that we've seen for a bit are primarily over. You just have to make sure that everything is clean for the next few days. Get out your vote. Make sure all your volunteers and people are ready to do whatever they have to do for the next little while. Doug Ford will continue on his campaign bus and will meet with other people, for example, much the same way that Andrea Horvath and Kathleen Wynne will do the same thing. And from there, the people will make that decision. I still think there are a lot of people out there, Scott, who have not fully made up their minds. Now, that unfortunately doesn't hold very well in terms of the nature of today's politics, and it means that people are very concerned by what they see. It also means that ideological rigidity is not necessarily affecting votes or is causing any sort of sea change or shift in this provincial election because a lot of people seem to be strategically voting, which is, I think, a huge mistake, but it's, you know, it's not illegal and it's not uncommon in elections. And for that reason, they have to sort of ensure that in the last few days, this being the PCs, that the Ontario NDP, who are really the other part of this two-horse race, I think we can safely say the Ontario Liberals are going to lose by some measure next week on June 7th, they have to ensure that the Ontario NDP's support base stays exactly where it is. The Ontario PCs have to fight as much as they possibly can to get to that magic number of about 40% in terms of total support, which would just make life a little safer, or if nothing else, they lose the popular vote to the NDP by margin of error, which is 2 to 3%. 
but because they have these pockets of support all throughout the province, they will be able to at least get together and create a small majority over the next week. That is all they can do, and they, but they just have to keep fighting, working hard, and basically not have much sleep or much of a life over the next few days to ensure that Ontario on June 7th has a Doug Ford government in place. Only got about 30 seconds left here, Michael. Is this going to get really dirty in the last few days? Well, it's been pretty dirty already, so mm. yes, I, I think that will continue. How would it not? I mean, look at what is at stake here. If you really believe that the next few years, let's say four to five years, are going to change the face of Ontario and make Ontario more competitive and make this economy stronger and just make our political system, shall we say, healthier after 15 years of ineffective liberal governments, then yes, I mean, I think it's going to become dirty pool. It has to continue that way. It still is to this day. There's lots of things that have come out. God knows what will come out over the next few days. I hope not too much. And from there, I mean, people are going to look back and say, was this an awful election? It was a tough one for sure. But I think it had to be fought this way because once you've had a government in for so long, much like the Ontario Liberals, you just knew it was going to be dirty in the sense that someone else had to fight as much as they can, tooth and nail, to get into power. And whoever it is, be it the PCs or NDP, They'll be able to look themselves in the mirror the next day, but they'll know that it was a very difficult battle with a lot of blood on the floor. Michael Tobis went with us, Troy Media, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor. Michael, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. According to documents that were obtained by Global News from the now-defunct Ontario Power Authority, billions of dollars in uh, unnecessary spending could have been avoided if the government simply listened to the experts, many of them their own. Uh, The headline is, Billion Dollar Mistake, Ontario Liberals Hijack Plans for Sustainable Green Economy. Uh, The authors of this are Brian Hill and Carolyn Jarvis, Global News. And Brian Hill is with us now. Brian, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, have your eyes readjusted and refocused after going through 4,000 pages of this stuff? <laughs> it was quite the task, I tell you. Good for you, though, and some fabulous reporting here. Uh, I've always said that the Liberal Party uh, has exploited Ontarians' sensitivity to the environment, uh, fear-mongering, or in this case, certainly not giving them all the cost details of the plan. Um I believe they used these green sensitivities to suck money out of the taxpayer. Is that an accurate or inaccurate statement? (laughs) I'm not sure that the documents uh, that we've got necessarily say that, but what they do say is that uh, less money could have been spent um, if advice had been followed. So, like you said, uh, a lot of people can debate the merits of whether or not we, Ontario, should have uh, or you know, got off of uh, coal-fired electricity. That was one of the main goals of that, uh, you know, how we go about doing that. And I think that's really what this is. So what we got is a case where the experts, uh, the government's own experts from the Ontario Power Authority, were helping to design and launch the Green Energy Act, were saying, look, we need to do this slowly. We need to be cautious. We need to price uh, solar, particularly solar, cautiously so that we don't unduly burden ratepayers really just saying we want this uh, industry to grow uh, at a trickle. And and what we ended up getting uh, was the floodgates opened wide. And that's 
according to these documents at least, largely due to the fact that the government did not listen to the advice of its own experts. So there's the, here's the first question. Why? Why would they not listen to experts, including their own? Like, this is, yeah, total, this good, is total short-term gain. And you do see that. So we spoke with Jim McDougall, uh, who was the lead engineer responsible for designing the now infamous FIT and MicroFIT programs. These are the plans that saw these uh, long-term energy contracts awarded to wind, solar, uh, hydroelectric companies. Um, you know, solar has uh, been pr- the most controversial of these uh, because it was awarded the highest price. And uh, really, the answer as to why, I think that's been out there for a long time. The government has always said, well, we needed to do this because we had to reinvest in a failed electricity grid. Uh, we also needed to get off coal. Uh, why they chose not to listen to the advice to go more slowly, uh, I think that is more nuanced, essentially saying they preferred, the government being preferred, uh, to maintain stability for investors, to maintain prices over a longer period of time uh, so that uh, they could create this green economy. Ultimately, though, according to Jim McDougall and, and these documents, that's what actually undermined the Green Energy Act in the first place, is that it was too much, too quick, because they didn't have any safeguards in place to prevent uh, a flood of these applications hitting the hitting the market. So they were more concerned about industry costs than they were the taxpayer or ratepayer. Yeah, and we've spoken to Brady Yauch. He's uh, uh, an economist with the Consumer Policy Institute. He also, at our request, reviewed these documents independently. And, 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 and that's one of the biggest takeaways for him was that all the people that were there uh, to... Um, safeguard this, to prevent this, to look out for the interests of ratepayers who were warning, saying we need to do this slowly, uh, they were ignored. At, at least that's what these documents suggest, and that's what uh, Jim McDougall uh, has said as well, that a lot of these decisions were being made uh, out of the minister's office, as opposed to uh, uh, relying upon sound, uh, economically-based, you know, prudent advice. So they were given this information. They just chose to ignore it. Again, what was the end game here? Did they just, and again, Kathleen Wynne said she made a mistake. They rushed this. They did mm-hmm. it too fast. They've, they've made the price unbearable for, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that mm-hmm. being said, they didn't correct the mistake. They just punted the payments farther down the road. Why was right. there, why once they admitted there was a mistake, didn't they try to correct it? Well, I, I, ultimately, this is an, an interesting point. So one of the details that we've learned in this document is that there is this internal struggle between the Ontario Power Authority tasked with designing the program and then the, the, the government, the Ministry of Energy. Uh, you know, admittedly, uh, as, as Brady Elk says, the OPA got caught with its pants down when they were designing this. There were unforeseen consequences. We had these things called aggregators where people were quote-unquote, gaming the system, taking advantage of loopholes in the rules. The OPA warned the government about that at the time, uh, and, and it took months and months and months uh, for a resolution to happen. And even when that resolution did happen, uh, you could argue that it wasn't the best possible outcome for ratepayers, that there may have been better options presented. 
And, and uh, well, there were, in fact, uh, better options presented. So really what you got to look at is that the government, when they launched this plan, had an, had an agenda, according to Jim McDougal. And that agenda was uh, that they wanted to create a green economy in Ontario. And they wanted to in, ensure uh, stability for investors. They wanted to create manufacturing jobs, a lot of which were created. Uh, but the question that has to be asked is, at what cost? Was, you know, and could this have been done differently? And, so it's not, a, and there's lots of people out there who said that. And it seems that when discussion discussing this, you're either on board or you're not on board. There's no happy medium. You can't question things. If you question their policies, then you're a fossil fuel burning pig. There doesn't seem to be any any happy medium here. This being that being said, although this has cost us way more than what it should have, have these programs helped at all? I think they have in some ways. So, I mean, first of all, we no longer burn coal in in Ontario, and and you know that's hard to dispute that as a bad, like hard to argue that that's a bad thing. You know, coal is dirty, and that being and, said, uh, they we're, they were in the process of being phased out anyway, were they not? That's true. We were moving in that direction, and you know, renewable energy. I think in almost any sustainable market around the world is a part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. The difference here, though, is that the, the experts were warning and saying we need to develop this gradually. The word gradually is important, and they wanted that to go slowly. And, and, and that didn't happen, unfortunately, uh, according to the OPA. They wanted advice followed, and that just didn't happen. Uh, so, you know, phasing out coal, we also see companies. There's companies that uh, do manufacture solar in Ontario that export to the United States. Canadian solar is an example, uh, as probably one of the big successes of of the Green Energy Act. Um, So, you know, you did get some of that, but not the way and not at the rate or the pace that uh, the experts would have preferred. So is this just bad planning or you're so caught up in your ideology you can't see the forest for the trees? You refuse to listen to experts. I mean, I think you could argue that not listening to expertise and the people that actually have this skill and knowledge to make decisions could be seen as poor planning. Uh, you know, at one point we see an internal email from April 2010, uh, several months, about a, a little less than a year after the Green Energy Act was passed and when they realized there were some major problems. And uh, the experts at the OPA were saying, these are technical issues that the government doesn't understand. It's one thing to keep them in the loop. It's another thing to take direction from them on technical things, on technical issues. So there were very, very uh, big concerns within the Ontario Power, Author- Ontario Power Authority uh, about who was making these decisions and based on what information. So, and, politi- and so obviously that's that important. So politicians uh, making calls on things they don't know anything about, they don't have expertise in, do politicians know enough to be dabbling in these industries this way? I mean, according to a lot of these documents, uh, the answer to that would be no. And that's why we put experts in place. The Ontario Power Authority was put in place to do precisely that. They were put there to provide expert advice on shaping Ontario's energy policy. And according to those experts, a lot of that advice was ignored. So what about the person or the party that comes in after to, to deal with this mess? What options do they have? How long is it going to take us to get out of this? Yeah, and that is a very important question. So I think, first of all, it's important for everybody. Everybody needs to look backward and think, what decisions have been made? How does that impact my life, the lives of the people around me? And what do I think about that? Those are all really valid questions to ask 
uh, particularly for voters. Uh, what I think also, though, is important is how is anybody going to fix this problem? Um, it's been described as a mistake. Everybody knows it's an issue. And uh, so the liberals have put forward their plan. Their plan to lower hydro rates is actually to make them more expensive over the long run anyways, because they've essentially borrowed $20 billion, according to them, $40 billion, according to the Auditor General, as a way of reducing electricity prices and spreading it out across multiple generations. So how do you fix the problem? Well, you've got to try and reduce the cost of producing energy. Uh, we're currently rebuilding two nuclear power plants uh, in Ontario, uh, the Bruce Power Plant as well as uh, the Darlington Plant. Those are extremely expensive projects uh, that will add costs. Uh, the Ontario Liberals have already said that bills will go up by another 43% over the next decade. So no matter who wins this election, they're going to have that unenviable task of leading a province into a decade where energy rates that are already high will get higher. And as far as refurbishing the nuclear facilities, there's not much of a choice there, is it, unless you want to close them down? Unless you want to have uh, no power. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, uh, nuclear facilities in Ontario provide 63% of our electricity supply. So, um, yeah, unless you want to flick off 63% of the light. Uh, but, um, you know, that's not an option, obviously. So uh, Ontario does need uh, to, to uh, refurbish those nuclear plants or find alternatives elsewhere, perhaps buying electricity from Quebec. They have a large supply, a surplus of uh, hydroelectricity. Uh, so that could be an option. Uh, New York State, for example, is in negotiations for that. Uh, Ontario is in ongoing negotiations to buy more power from, from Quebec as well. So, you know, or cheap solar. It's a lot cheaper now than it was 10 years ago when the Green Energy Act was, was passed. Mm. So th there are options. Uh, what about the NDP plan of buying it all back? Well, buying Hydro One back, uh, I mean, one, it's going to cost money. So, I mean, right now they're about, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think they're about $6 billion worth of shares in the open market that are held by, primarily held by institutions. So investment funds, uh, pension funds, mutual funds, those sorts of things. So it's going to come at a premium, um, you know, and, and could it be done? Technically, yes, it can be done. And once they buy it back, it means more revenue in the government's pocket, sure. Uh, but we're going to have to pay a pay a penny for that, a uh, big penny. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that will help. But that ultimately doesn't reduce the cost of electricity. It just will potentially generate more money for the province, but, you know, at a, at a cost. And that will take time to do. You can't throw all that money away at once and do it all in one fell swoop either, can you? Well, you could, but it would be a different process. Right now, the Ontario NDP is uh, planning to use the dividends that they have, converting those. So they get money for the shares that they do own and converting those uh, into shares. So basically buying it a bit at a time. If the government wanted to buy it all back at one go, they'd have to make an offer, right? Mm -hmm. They'd have to offer shareholders, um, say, here's our offer, take it or, you know, and that, that's how that would go, like any other sort of agreement like that. Um, so, you know, possible, but that's not what the NDP is proposing. So under their plan, they're saying it could take 10 years. Other experts are saying it could take much longer. So we'd have to have an NDP government for 10 years for this to happen. Well, maybe 20. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, is the NDP plan better costed than the Liberal plan? Well, will, the Liberal it, plan is already... Sorry? Will, will it end up costing Ontarians more under NDP or less? 
It's hard to say. I mean, the, the liberal plan is already in play, right? So yeah. the liberals have said uh, that they've, a lot of these things have already come into play. Like, so back in 2006, uh, 16, sorry, when sort of this uh, hydro crisis had reached a fever pitch, we had uh, uh, Kathleen Wynne prorogue the provincial legislature after a, you know, a surprising defeat in a long-time liberal riding in the GTA. Uh, come back announces a reduction in the GS uh, in the in the provincial portion of the HST. They come back again with uh, bigger subsidies, again with fair hydro plan, again with uh, canceling some renewable contracts. So, to be fair, the uh, the Liberals have done uh, uh, quite a bit in response to rising electricity rates. Mm. Um, you know, the NDP's plan, whether or not that in practice will make it cheaper, it's hard to say. I mean. Their part of their plan is to cancel the fair hydro plan and then to reinstate other savings. So certainly it could, but it, you know, could in this file is a kind of the key word here. There's whether or not it works is a different issue. What can future politicians, future governments, future jurisdictions learn from this mistake? Um, well, the Ontario Liberals have already learned from from this, and 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 they've corrected a lot of things. For example, the, the FIT and MicroFIT programs offered long-term fixed-price contracts. The government of Ontario has said they're no longer going to do that. In fact, they did that rather quickly. Uh, 2010, they started offering these contracts. By 2013, they said, we're not going to do that for big projects anymore. The FIT and MicroFIT programs are now dead uh, as of last year, and they've cancelled any new renewable contracts for the moment. So, they're basically saying, look, we need to move to a competitive bidding process where companies bid for contracts for the amount of electricity we need to buy from them, and the best and lowest price bids win, which interestingly is how Ontario bought power, renewable power, before FIT and MicroFIT. Hmm. And that's what the Auditor General has often compared these plans to, saying had we just continued on that path, Ontarians would have saved $9.2 billion under the FIT and MicroFIT plan. So where is, and many have asked me this, uh, many callers have asked this, where is the Green Energy Act now? Are they still building wind farms? Are they still building wind turbines? Is it still going full steam ahead despite what you've said? Uh, they are. I mean, so uh, the many contracts have been offered under the Green Energy Act uh, and under the FIT and MicroFIT programs, later versions, uh, FIT 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, um, and as, as the years have gone on. And so, yeah, th- there are still, um, you know, wind farms in particular, that they're still under construction. They're not looking for any new procurement, meaning they're not going to buy any new or sign any new deals, but there are still deals that have been signed that are still years away from completion, so that will be coming on online uh, in the future, meaning that's when we start paying for them. So what does green energy look like in the future for Ontario? I mean, will this continue? Will all of a sudden, once the next government gets in, whatever it is, everything flatlines now and we stay where we are for the next 10 years as far as construction and and advancing this cause? Are we advancing the environmental cause any? Well, so interestingly, uh, you know, at present, on a small scale, if you reduce your consumption, you'll save money. But if the province as a whole cut their usage in half, it actually wouldn't really save money because we've got all these costs that are embedded into the system, right? We've got these contracts. They have to be paid. We're rebuilding these nuclear facilities. 
they have to be built. Uh, and so that's all happening. Uh, and what you really, what needs to happen is an overall reduction in electricity usage. And then eventually we don't need to build and use, uh, produce so much electricity. But that's probably 10 years down the road when a lot of these contracts start to expire. So we're talking late 2020s, early 2030s, uh, before electricity, re- you know, and keep in mind, we're also, you know, Ontarians are going to also have to continue to pay back the Fair Hydro Plan, um, which is another $40 billion, if you believe the Auditor General. So there's a lot of costs. These are all numbers with billions after them, right? Like the electricity sector is not a small industry. Um, every single one of these costs is in the billions. Uh, 12 billion here, 13 billion here, 40 billion here, 20 billion here. There's a lot of billions, um, you know, and uh, it's expensive. So, uh, like, like the projections already say that electricity rates will continue to climb for the next decade. Uh, you have 4,000 pages you went through here. What's next? What's next coming from you on this? <laughs> uh, we're going to continue to look at that. We may have a few more uh, stories coming out of this. Uh, you know, there, there's always a lot, I think, in the energy file. Uh, for now, uh, th- this investigation sort of been the um, culmination of, you know, years of uh, years of work that we've put as a network into uh, focusing on the issues of hydro and rising prices and how that's impacted people in Ontario. Uh, it's been a been an important issue for global news. Uh, like I say, we've really been uh, digging deep into that for uh, more than two years now. Great work. Brian Hill's been with us, Global News Associate Producer. And, of course, uh, today the uh, column is Billion Dollar Mistake, Ontario Liberals Hijack Plans for Sustainable Green Economy by Brian Hill and Carolyn Jarvis of Global News. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for the time. Great work. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.